0: G'day and welcome to this very special 18-week podcast series, Ministry Memories, in honour of our 18th anniversary this year at Bayside Church. We've gone through the old archives and had a look at some of the fantastic guest speakers and ministers that we've had the privilege of hosting here in our pulpit over the years. And We thought it'd be a great idea to revisit and remind and refresh our memory on some of the timeless truths that those ministries have brought through. Enjoy. As much as we welcome Holy Spirit to speak to us tonight, why don't you also welcome Mark to Thanks, come. Thanks, Chad. Along. Thank you, man. Sure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chad, and thank you, all of you. Saturday night, pastors out to a meeting. This is amazing. Fantastic. Nothing else to do? Sermon ready for tomorrow? Someone else is preaching, right? No? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Hey, it really is good to be here in Victor Harbour. It is my first time. And as I said to the men this morning, I think Victor Harbour is one of Australia's best kept secrets. Obviously, you're keeping it. Uh, It's a beautiful place. We had a great men's breakfast down at Hotel Victor this morning. And this afternoon, I went for a walk, had a pizza down at Nino's, and walked to the artisan market and stuck my. Head into the uh, art show tent and walked along the beach and what a beautiful place. Really, really enjoyed. A fantastic uh, place to live, do life and to do ministry. And so um, also great to have you as pastors and leaders uh, here. Appreciate all your churches and what you're doing and very excited about Church Together tomorrow coming together. You know, I think from God's perspective, there's just one church in Victor Harbor. Uh, Many congregations, but one church made up of everyone who... Calls Jesus Lord. Uh, and so when we see that, it really changes things. And uh, Psalms 133 says God commands a blessing when there's unity. And so I think really good days ahead for Victor Harbour. And yet it does take different churches to reach different people, doesn't it? You know, You're all in different positions, different parts of the city, different styles of, of worship and ministry. And it does take a variety of churches to reach a variety of people. But we're all on the same team. And when you turn from competition to cooperation, something amazing happens. I remember a friend of mine who pastored the church in Melbourne, where I was, said, You know, if the church up the road is growing, if people are coming to faith, your church is growing. Some of you get that tomorrow. It's true, because it's the church of Jesus here in Victor Harbour. And so fantastic, great to be together. And uh, thank you, Chad, for opening your place tonight and uh, letting us um, come and hang out here for four or five hours. Only kidding. When you, mentioned the, when, you men, when you mentioned the seats, I thought, no, we won't, we won't keep you too long. Um, as Chad mentioned, uh, married to Nicole, we've been married uh, 32 years now. Um, Nicole was born in Germany, grew up in South Africa, I was born in Melbourne, grew up in America, and we met in Rockhampton, Queensland. So we've got a little bit of the United Nations in our family, um, but uh, we've had a great journey, three young adult kids. Uh, as far as my ministry journey, I'm, I'm a PK, a preacher's kid. Or my dad used to call me a TO, which stands for Theological Offspring. It's a little higher class of PK. And so I grew up in church when I was a kid. We went to church three times every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, back on Wednesday night. Uh, when I was about nine, uh, my family went to America. My dad was teaching through all of these conferences on the west coast of Australia back in those days with Ern Baxter and Bob Mumford. So I think I went to about 800 church meetings in 18 months. So I spent a lot of time in church, got bored with the kids program, sat on the front row, took notes from my dad. End times were the real trend then. I remember as a nine-year-old saying to my dad, dad, are you going to speak about the Antichrist tonight or aren't these people ready for this? So kind of grew up in church, although really, really didn't have an aspiration for ministry. My dad actually said to me, if you can get out of ministry, get out of it. He was speaking from experience. Ministry is a lot more than what happens between Sundays, as you all know. But he said this, if God's called you, you probably won't get out of it. And so I started out in in music, actually came on staff at our church as the worship pastor. And uh, back in those days, I thought worship was the most important ministry in the church. And the best meetings were when we just worshiped and the preacher didn't even get to preach. not many worship people here tonight Uh, and so I did that for a while and then uh, I was asked to be the youth pastor and so Nicole and I led the youth ministry for about five years and then I realized that youth were the most important ministry in the church it's the next generation and so we did that for five years and then um, our church administrator left and I was asked to be the church administrator and I said what's that? So, I did a diploma in business management and learned about budgeting and financing. And then I realized being organized was the most important thing in church. Why is that camp under budget? Why the. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I feel the anointing right now. The gift of administration is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, come on. Come on. So, anyway. About this time, I'm having a bit of an identity crisis, as you can imagine. Who am I? A worship leader, a youth pastor, an administrator, Uh, eventually became associate pastor. But how many know God's will often makes sense looking back, not when you're in the journey? And so I had about 10 years of a variety of hats and then uh, eventually became the senior minister of our church. I was the third minister. A man named Richard Holland started it, led it for 20 years, and then my dad led for eight years and then I led for another 22 years, and so um, we, 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 we saw a lot of growth during that time. When I inherited my dad's church, it was about 1,500 people, and we grew to about 10,000 in four locations, 11 meetings, a big community center, big missions program, Christian school, 1,800 students in two campuses, and um, I was very tired after a while. <laughs> We saw a, a lot of growth, and, uh, but yeah, seriously, I, I probably had a little bit of mild burnout and just kind of thinking, do I want to do this for another five or ten years or is it time for a change? And so as a result of some conversation with the elders, we had a really good transition and so last February we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the church, had my farewell, inducted the fourth senior minister, Andrew Hill, uh, who's leading now. And so I'm only 56, which is very young, not retiring. But I I got to a point where I actually wanted a bit of a smaller world, not a bigger world, a slower pace, not a faster pace, and a simpler life more than a complex life. Should have moved to Victor Harbor, shouldn't I? So we took a few months off, and then we moved to the Sunshine Coast, which, you know, someone's got to do it. We're suffering for Jesus up there. Only 300 days of sunshine a year. Uh, We've always holidayed in the warm weather, and so there's not many moments in life when you have no obligations, so we're based up there and just starting to do a bit of speaking now, a bit of coaching of some pastors, and a little bit of travel without kind of being an itinerant, and we're really enjoying this season, you know, kind of giving our life to a church, and now to be free to actually travel and Uh, be a blessing to the broader church is fantastic. I was just in Russia um, a few months ago in Moscow speaking to 1500 pastors from all over the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union and Russia and so whether it's Victor Harbor or Russia it's just great to be free to be a blessing to some other places and hopefully share some of the things that we've learned. So that's a brief little bio about my story, and so for you today, whether you're a pastor or a team member or long-termer like me, um, done a lot of years, or maybe you're new to church ministry, I really pray that um, what I share tonight will be a blessing to you. Amen? Accent going okay? Don't need an interpreter up here? Understanding me all right? Okay, fantastic. Let me pray. Father, it's good to be together tonight, and uh, I don't know what's happening in every individual congregation or in the leaders that are here tonight, but you do. And as Chad said, your Holy Spirit can speak from me tonight and just encourage, lift up, inspire, as well as challenge all of us to see your kingdom come and your will be done uh, here in Victor Harbor and the surrounding areas. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Amen. Well, I think we'd all agree that uh, we're living in really exciting but challenging times. Exciting but challenging. Things are changing dramatically here in Australia. Um, if you look at the last census, I think belief in God is now about 64%. You know, a few censuses ago it was 71%. When the 67, now 64. So the people who say they have no particular faith is a growing group. About 64% uh, are saying they believe in God. Um, we're a nation not just of of Christians now. We've got other religions here. Um, you see that on the drive down, little Buddhist temple with a little guy looking out on the, you know, it, it, we're not in Kansas anymore, are we? You know, it, it, it's a different world. We're living in a pluralistic world where there are now many faiths competing for people's attention. Um, not only is belief in God down, still pretty high, 64%. Here in Australia, it's estimated about 9% of Aussies go to church on a weekend. So quite a big gap between belief in God and attendance. Around 20% go once a month, but there's quite a big gap, which kind of tells me the average Aussie doesn't necessarily have a problem with God, but church, for many, is irrelevant to their life. Um, It gets better. I'm, I'm just starting with the real world. Um, A survey was done a while back in the community of people who don't go to church, asking them, why don't you go to church? Top five reasons. They said the people are unfriendly, the sermons are boring, they don't like the music, there's nothing for the children, and they're always asking for money. Now, how many know they haven't been to your church? Because your church is friendly, the music's great, the sermons are fantastic. It's a good chance to say amen. You've got a great kids' program, and you only ask for money, what, Two Or three times a meeting? No, only kidding. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that the perceptions in the community are. Uh, churches actually change, but many Aussies are apathetic. Not so much antagonistic, but apathetic. And so we've got a challenge, but also an opportunity here in Australia. And the generation shifts and all of the things that are happening around us. And so what I thought I'd do tonight is just share some reflections with you, some random reflections. Thank you, Belle. Or slide number one. Just some, some thoughts about ministry from where I'm standing, reflecting back, and this will be a little bit of a smorgasbord. Anyone like buffets? Okay. Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of thoughts and uh, hopefully you won't get indigestion by the time we're done, but maybe there'll just be one or two things that the Holy Spirit will use to encourage you this evening. You didn't give me a finish time, I just kind of... They'll start to walk out when, when, when it's kind of... That's all right. We're, we're doing okay? Okay, fantastic. A cheese platter? A, the, buffet. Uh, the buffet, you're right. We've already eaten, haven't we? Yeah, okay. So I'll move a little quicker over every dish. These reflections, these reflections are what I would call nuances. And so the first reflection is called presence over program. Presence over programs. There's nothing wrong with programs. At City Life Church, we had dozens, if I not say hundreds, of programs, ministries, meetings, activities, and I probably could guarantee that you've got a lot of programs happening this year. Nothing wrong with them, but how many of our programs are a means to an end? And in all of our organizing of programs, we've got to make sure we don't miss God in the midst of what's happening. Uh, two, two quick stories. Two quick stories. There's a man named Tony in our community a few years back, and City Life used to be on a street that went through to the tip and the recycling center. We used to say, yeah, we're the church on the way to the tip. We recycle people's lives, you know. Um, anyway, so one Sunday, this um, cars everywhere, and Tony comes with his car and his trailer, and, you know, he's going down the street to the tip and dumps his load and he comes back and sees all these cars everywhere and we've got a sign City Life Church that says all welcome. In Tony's words he said I saw the sign all welcome and I thought well I'm an all so I must be welcome. So he got, parked his trailer and he popped in the back of our meeting and uh, he kind of sat up behind the sound desk there and listened to this redhead, I used to have redhead, guy speaking and uh, he says yeah something amazing here. He kind of kept coming and eventually he he put his trust in Jesus, got involved in our Alpha program, ran Alpha courses and later on I actually heard the story in a bit more detail. He says, you know, Mark, I was actually on drugs then and um, I was so impacted by just being in this space that in the week, uh, sometimes I would have urges to take drugs and I'd literally just drive my car in the car park in, in, in the middle of the week and I'd just wait in the car park until the urges went and then I'd leave. Not a program. We did have a sign that said all the welcome, but it was God's presence that touched Tony's life. A, a story of another lady named Bev. Um, I think I mentioned this at the conference that we met a, a Lou up in Adelaide. Uh, Bev, middle-aged lady went to Catholic Church as a child, but no real relationship with God. Um, she's quite a shy person. She went to a seminar at work and it was one of these kind of motivational seminars, step out of the box, do something different, you know, break out of your comfort zone and you know, Bev's, as I said, a bit of a shy person, so she was kinda, okay, maybe I need to do this. And so, uh, that weekend on the Saturday, there was some Mormons doing their rounds and knocked on the door and again she wouldn't let strangers in but the seminar said you know do something different so she welcomed them in gave them a cup of tea they invited her to their mormon service on sunday morning again she wouldn't normally do this she's not a religious person but she said okay i'll come sunday morning she gets dressed she's driving along high street road eastern suburbs of melbourne she gets to kathy's lane instead of turning right up to the big mormon temple she turned left and came into city life church and there's people everywhere, and she's asking for elder so-and-so. Now, no one knew elder so-and-so. Eventually, one of our ushers realized she was looking for the Mormon church and explained that it was up the road. We've, we've got to train our ushers a lot better. LAUGHTER she, she, so she got back in her car, and she went up the road and drove into the big Mormon temple. And she got there. There was the elder so-and-so. She was late, and he was very upset. He said, you're supposed to be here at you know, whatever time it was. And, and, and she said, oh, look, I'm sorry. I took a wrong turn. Anyway, she sat down in their meeting, and, and she didn't like it. In fact, she was annoyed at how rude she'd be treated. So she got up out of that meeting, got in her car, drove back down to City Life Church. She kept coming Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And after a few weeks, she put her trust in Jesus and began a relationship with him. Now, now the, the reason I tell you that story is the only hero in that story is God. Think about it. God is using a motivational seminar. He's using a wrong turn on Sunday. He's using a grumpy Mormon elder. He's orchestrating all this to get Bev in a place where she knows that there's a God who loves her. And I mention that simply to say, I think Victor Harbour has many Tonys and Bevs. And you know, we have a lot of preaching on evangelism and mission. But you know, one of the best guilt-free things to realize is we don't have to do the work of mission. God's doing the work of mission, even as we're sitting here tonight. And all we need to do is be looking out for the Tonys and the Bev's that will intersect our world, even tonight, maybe somewhere where you have a coffee afterwards, and to join God in his work. It's very simple, but I would simply say, as we begin our ministry year, have the programs. We had a sign. We had a meeting. We had an all-welcome here. Do the programs, but ultimately, it's the presence of God that touches the Tony, touches the Bev. It's so important that we do that. Moses, how many know Moses had a bit of ministry detail in his programs? Just read Exodus. Just look at the setup of the temple. Anyone in a rented venue? Come on. Moses had a big setup. But, but you know, Moses said this, unless your presence goes with us, we don't want to go forward. And so as you look to this year, uh, do the programs, but realize it's the presence of God. I was down on the, uh, the bay today and there's a lot of uh, catamarans going out. I, lo- I love sailing. You know, you can get across a, a, a bay or a lake through rowing. How many know rowing works? Yeah. But it's all your strength. Or you can sail. How many know sails- sailing is very different? it's about positioning yourself. It's about getting the sails up. But how many know if the wind doesn't blow, you're not going anywhere? But if you catch that wind, watch out. When you minister and run your church this year, you can be in a rowing mode and you'll get somewhere, but how many know it's going to be a lot of work? Or you can be in a sailing mode. And a sailing mode is about positioning yourself to catch the wind of the Spirit. That's how Jesus did ministry. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so I want to encourage you uh, to really believe for God's presence in your meetings this weekend and throughout the year. Uh, Again, um, I think the presence of God, I'm a Pentecostal. I I studied at an Anglican college, I did my doctorate full, so I appreciate the full spectrum. Uh, I think sometimes our language really needs to be altered. Um, I heard a really powerful statement. We don't need more of God's presence. What we need is Awareness of God's presence. It's really, really important. Remember Jacob, Genesis 28? He's in a desert place, desert dry. In the middle of the night, he has a dream of angels ascending and descending to heaven. And he wakes up and says, God was in this place. What turns a desert place into a God place? Awareness. 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 And so I I, I think we've got to watch our language. I tell our worship leaders, don't say stuff like, isn't it good to be in God's presence today? Where were we yesterday? And where will we be when this meeting is done? Is God here waiting for us to come back next week to visit him? Are you with me? He's with us all the time. We, We say other prayers like this. Jesus, please be with us today. The last time I read Matthew 28 was, he said, I will be with you till the end of the age. How many know the age hasn't ended, so he's still with us? We should change our language to, Jesus, thank you, you are with us today. See, we don't need more of God's presence. We need to wake up to the presence of God. And so I want to encourage you, presence over programs. Wake up, be aware of the Tony of the Bev around you this year. Everyone said amen. Number two, second thought, cheese platter. That was a little, that was a large piece of cheese. We'll go to something smaller now. Uh, Number two is relationships over tasks. So so presence over, this isn't presence against programs, it's presence over programs. Secondly, relationships over tasks. I have a confession, I love tasks. I have a task list on my holidays. I love ticking boxes. And there'll be a lot of tasks that you'll be involved in this year. But in all of our doing, it's really important to realize that the best productivity flows out of a depth of intimacy with God. I love the story of Mary and Martha, Luke 10. They were both disciples. They both loved Jesus. But how many know Martha was so busy doing the work of the Lord that she actually didn't get to know the Lord of the work? And there's a lot of ministry to do this year. And our danger is that we all become Marthas and we don't take time to be Marys. Sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his word. Now, Mary didn't stay there. It's not Mary versus Martha. But as we sit at his feet, as we hear his word, and then we minister out of that intimacy, out of that closeness, how many know our level of fruitfulness is so much greater I say this, as a minister, if your inflow doesn't exceed your outflow, it'll lead to your downfall. The truth is you're going to be giving out a lot this year, counseling, preparing messages, all the things that you do. It's so important that your relationship with God takes a priority over all of the ministry tasks that you're involved with. And that involves some discipline, some slowing, and some attentiveness. There's another story that I've been challenged with beyond the Jacob stories, the Moses story in Exodus 3. Moses is walking along, there's a burning bush. And if you look at the language in Genesis, it's quite fascinating. It says, when God saw that Moses stopped to look, God said, this is powerful. There's a burning bush, God isn't speaking yet. When God saw that Moses stopped to look, then God spoke. Who talks to inattentive people? If, if, if your kids aren't listening, then you know, get their attention before you start talking. And so the challenge for you and I is, how many burning bushes did we walk by today? They're there. Bushes still burn. But it's only when we stop, when we look, that God then speaks. And I tell you what, one word from God into your heart, the impact of your message, of your leadership, of your life. But we have to stop to turn aside through that relationship. Number three, presence over program, relationship over task. Number three, being over doing. We will be doing a lot this year. But I have learned this in leadership. Who you are speaks louder than what you say. Who you are speaks louder than what you say. And the way we go about what we do is so important. Psalms 100 says, serve the Lord with gladness. There's a lot of people who serve the Lord. Yeah. No, it's not, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. That has a huge impact. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, an example of the believer in fact I would say this whatever you want your church to be don't just preach on it you be an illustration of that if you want a friendly church guess what kind of a leader you have to be if you want an enthusiastic church guess what kind of a leader you have to be enthusiastic if you want an outward focused church guess what kind of a leader come on I'm preaching better than you're amening right now You've got to be whatever you want your church to be. Um, Here's here's a little, let me do a little check with you, a little illustration. I want you to think of the person that that has had the greatest impact on your life to this point in time, okay? Besides Jesus, someone that's had the biggest impact on your life. Just bring them to mind. Hopefully you've got one person. Now, I don't want to know their name, but the second question is, why did you choose them? What was it about them that caused you to bring them to mind? Okay? So I don't want to know their name, but I want to know what was it. Speak to me. Mark? Don't tell me the person. But, but what was it about them that influenced you? Okay. But, but can you tell me a bit about the person? How would you describe them? Okay. Okay. Okay? So we've got fun, informative, teacher. Excellent. Someone else? Character. Passion. They were relational. Integrity. Attitude. Honesty. Encouragement. Full of life. Love. Acceptance. Wise. Okay, let's pause right here. You were telling me the person who had the greatest influence on your life, you're telling me why they had an influence. Think about what no one said. No one said they were an amazing preacher, which is really discouraging for us (laughs) who preach. You said teacher. No one said they were a phenomenal musician, which is really discouraging for those of us who play music. In fact, no one said... They had phenomenal Bible knowledge. Did you notice that? Nothing wrong with the Bible. Other than wisdom and teaching and informing, everything else you mentioned was a character quality. Passion. Encouragement. Integrity. Attitude. Isn't that pretty amazing? You're telling me the major influencer in your life, what was it about them? It was simply who they were as a person. You know what's really encouraging? Is you can have all those qualities. You can be encouraging. You can be kind. You can be loving. You can have a great attitude. Who you are. And I want to mention that simply to say, we'll be doing a lot of things this year. We'll be doing a lot of things and work on your talents and your gifts. But ultimately, it's your life. That has the greatest impact. And so, being overdoing is something just to reflect on as you're going through ministry this year. Number four, fourth reflection is practices over beliefs. This is something that really emerged for me in the last few years. Beliefs are very important. At City Life, we had a statement of faith, 12 statements. We had core values, 12 core values. Beliefs are really important. But could I say that practices, I think, are actually even more important. In fact, the Great Commission, going to all the world, Matthew 28, you know it, you've preached on it, the Great Commission is going to all the world, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to, what's the next word? Obey, one translation says do. It does not say teaching them to know everything I've commanded you. Knowledge does not change the world. It says, teaching them to obey, to put into practice what I've commanded you. John Maxwell says this, most Christians are educated beyond the level of their obedience. Sila. Most Christians, most pastors, are educated beyond the level of their obedience in other words we don't need to know more we need help doing what we already know you can have a great statement of faith you can have a great list of core values nothing wrong with beliefs they're really really important but i think we've got to focus on practices more than beliefs jesus talked about two houses going up one on the rock one on the sand what was the difference between the two houses what was the rock You know, we often say Jesus was the rock. Actually, not the interpretation of the story. Chad got it first. You know what the rock is in the story? The only difference between the two houses is one heard the sayings of Jesus, the other one heard and put them into practice. The rock, the solid foundation of your life, is not just hearing good sermons, reading the Bible, knowing and agreeing with a bunch of beliefs. It's what you do with your life. That provides that solid foundation. And, and, and just a little pause here. I think as preachers, we need a lot more how-to preaching and a lot less what-to preaching. If I get up tomorrow morning and I tell the church, you need to pray, we need to be people of prayer, how many know they're going to leave feeling really encouraged? Your church knows they should pray and they already feel guilty for not praying enough. They don't need another message that says you should pray. What they need is for us to get up and say, you know, we all know we should pray, but, but, but how do you actually pray? What, what, what do you do when you talk to God? You know, I've struggled with prayer. Let me share a few things as to how I talk to God. Don't get up next Sunday and say, we need to share our faith. Come on, we haven't seen anyone saved this year. We need to be sharing our faith. How many know they're going to be really encouraged through that message? Most Christians know they should share their faith and they feel guilty for not... They don't need another you should message. I remember when I became the senior minister of our church, we'd grown through a lot of transfer growth. My dad used to say, we don't steal sheep, we just grow grass. <laughs> and so we had a lot of transfer growth. And, and I, don't have, I don't have the gift of evangelism, but God challenged me from 2 Timothy, where Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He didn't say be an evangelist. Timothy was a pastor and a teacher. But he says do the work of an evangelist. I remember getting up on a Sunday morning and for 10 Sundays we taught the entire Contagious Christianity course. And I began by saying, you know what? I I don't have a lot of confidence sharing my faith. I get a bit nervous, but I want to grow in my ability to share the love of Jesus with my neighbors and friends. How about we take a journey together as a church? Man, you had everyone's attention because you're being real. And they want to know, okay, how do you start a spiritual conversation? How does Jesus at the well move from water to, to, to worship to politics to what's happening on the inside of your heart? Let's talk about what do you say on Monday when people say, what did you do on the weekend? People need help. People need training, not just to know the right things, but to know how to put them into practice. How we live our lives, our behaviors, are actually a greater indicator than the beliefs that we may aspire to. We doing okay? Doing okay tonight? Okay, just a few thoughts on our cheese platter. Number five is stories over numbers. You know, uh, at City Life, we had a lot of numbers. We counted a lot of things. You probably don't in Victor Harbor, but we counted attendance. Only kidding. I know you do. And we also count the offering, don't we? We count attendance, we count salvations, we count baptisms, we count volunteers. Uh, nothing wrong with numbers. How many you know the, whole, the Bible's got a whole book of numbers? Yeah, nothing wrong with numbers, but stories over numbers. The Bible It contains a lot of numbers, but ultimately it's a story about God and people. Containing numbers, but the focus is people. We know Jesus fed 5,000. Someone must have counted. That's a pretty big crowd. But you know what the focus was? On a story of a little boy with lunch. And how God stretched the faith of the disciples. And so count the numbers, but don't miss the stories. It's about people and their story and your story and our story and God's story and history. Um, I used to say to my youth pastor, you know, don't, don't tell me 13 kids got baptized on Friday. Tell me one story about the kid who came along and their family and two friends had never been to church. Let's, let's learn to capture the stories And tell the stories. Tell the Bev stories. Tell the Tony stories. Uh, People love stories. Jesus never preached without a story, without a parable, without an illustration. And and so numbers are okay, but I think we need to be telling more stories. The stories of triumph and struggle. Asking questions. Finding out what's happening in their world. And telling the good news of Jesus. Amen? Two more. Two more. Uh, Number six is a little bit more of a theological reflection so all of those who who went to bible college and love a little bit more depth there's been too many jokes so far Um, this is your piece of cheese right here (laughs) the sixth reflection is exiles over kings Ooh, very deep Uh, i got this thought from a book by walter brueggemann an old testament scholar in a book called Cadences of Home, Preaching Among Exiles. It's an amazing little book. And what he does, he simply looks at all of the sociological environments in the Bible where ministry was taking place. And he draws some analysis to where we are doing church in the 21st century. And so, for instance, you've got the wilderness period. This is before the monarchy. Remember the wilderness? They've left Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And I tell you what, there's no temple. There's no stable institution. They're on the margins of society. It's unstable. It's un- un- uncertain. It's fluid. It's informal. It's a little bit like a church plant. Anyone planted a church before? can you identify where that kind of we're moving you know that the tent's up and then it's down and and so this was one ministry environment this kind of wandering nomadic you know we don't have our roots down there's nothing permanent there's nothing stable Uh, some of you in that kind of environment Uh, then we have coming into the land we have the monarchy period the monarchy period uh, that, that lasted for for hundreds of years this is where you've got Jerusalem and you've got King David, and you've got the prophet Samuel, and you've got the priests, and you've got this temple community where everything is flowing together around one value system of Yahweh as God. And and, and this is another time in Israel. In fact, what's interesting, it was never repeated from that moment forward. But the monarchy was another time, and in many ways that corresponds to a couple of generations ago of what we would call Christendom. Anyone heard of Christendom? Where you've got this kind of idea of what we preach in church has been reinforced by the laws in the land, reinforced in the culture, and there's this sense of one nation under God. Then you have this next environment called exile exile is when jerusalem had been defeated and they went off into captivity and now there's no temple there's no king other than nebuchadnezzar there's 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 prophets but there's little influence and then you have this post-exile community where there's synagogue and rabbis the temple's gone but there's this textual kind of community so that's a very brief summary of the book but his point is this where we're doing ministry today is far more like the period of exile than the period of monarchy. And if as pastors and leaders we kind of see ourselves as kings in a Christendom mindset, we won't be connecting with where our people are at. In many ways we're living in a time of exile where we have a sense of a spiritual home but how many know we're not at home in the culture that we live in today? We're not at home. We're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. Most of the messages you give on Sunday will probably not be reinforced on television on Sunday night. Are you with me? The kind of values that we preach, uh, the, the kind of life that pleases God, that's not getting reinforced out in the culture. In fact, we're swimming upstream in the culture and really we're kind of resident aliens who we're kind of from another place, we don't feel at home and yet we're here. Now here's the danger of exile. You either end up in despair and just despair about the world and all that's happening out there and so you kind of withdraw and become a hermit or you have the danger of assimilation where you just become like the world and there's no difference between us, the same values as the people out in a community. Christians are no different. What's really encouraging is that the Bible is full of models for helping us preach to exile. Anyone heard of Joseph? Where did Joseph do life and ministry? Egypt, well, prison, yeah. Bit of prison ministry there. Joseph was in Egypt. Anyone been to Egypt? Anyone been to Egypt? Cairo? Valley of the Kings? Unbelievable. Joseph is in Egypt man as far away from Jerusalem as you can imagine and yet he rises to number two he excels in the empire God uses him right in that Egyptian environment anyone heard of Esther Esther's in Persia whoa that's not Jerusalem unbelievable but God used this young woman named Esther anyone heard of Daniel Daniel in Babylon I was somewhere recently I was preaching in Moscow And then I went to St. Petersburg, and they have the third largest museum in the world called the Hermitage, the State Hermitage in St. Petersburg. And they have all of these reliefs. They're literally bigger than this wall here that they have excavated from Babylon. And they've got all the Babylonian gods there. In fact, they've got the Gate of Ishtar. Daniel would have walked up that street every day of his life. He's in Babylon. It's not the temple with the candlestick and the table of showbread. And yet the Bible tells us he was 10 times better than all of the other magicians and advisors to the king. He excelled in Babylon. And you've got the church in Rome. You've got Paul at Mars Hill where he doesn't say. How many know in the synagogue you could say, let's turn to Isaiah and everyone knows where you're going. When you're at Mars Hill, you can't go, let's turn to Isaiah. Everyone goes, Isaiah, where's he? Mars Hill, you know, in Mars Hill's sermon, Paul didn't quote, sorry, Paul didn't, turn to one scripture, but his sermon is full of theological language and a Christian worldview. So I mention all that to say is tomorrow morning when our people gather, they are like Esther in Persia, Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon. That's what their world is like, and we have all these models to help us. But unless we realize that that's the new reality, we'll be preaching as if we're in Jerusalem. And wondering why it's not connecting and we're not helping our people. Just a thought, a reflection for us. We're in a new reality where the old church absolutes are no longer trusted. Pluralism reigns, the thinking of autonomous individualism. And so we've got to tell an alternative story. And here's the key thing I wrote it down here somewhere. All of those people, Joseph, Esther, Daniel, Paul, became bilingual. They learnt the speech of the empire but they never forgot their mother tongue. That's the challenge. How many know there's some people who immigrate here and actually don't immigrate to Australia. They create a little conclave. Daniel could speak the language of empire. Joseph could speak the language of Egypt. They learned the language of empire, but they never forgot their mother tongue. They never forgot their roots, their heritage, where they're from. And that's the challenge for us today is to help our people speak the language of our world, excel in this world, in this modern marketplace, but to know their roots and their faith as they minister. One final thought, and then we'll wrap it up. Number seven is love over all. At some point as a pastor, you probably have to ask yourself, what's the measure of a great church? We all want great churches. And, you know, I think sometimes we've made the measure of a great church, church the size of the church. But you'll never read any letter in the New Testament from Paul going, I hear you've broken the 200 barrier. It's not there. Listening to some of our church growth seminars, you'd think it was there. You know, if your neighbor has seven kids and you've got four kids, do they have a better family than you? They've just got more kids. Bigger is not always better, trust me. B- b- bigger just means more of everything, including problems and challenges and all those areas. Uh, some, some people think that the measure of a great church is the anointing in the church. know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. How many know Corinth was a very anointed church? They could prophesy, they could speak amazing um, mysteries and revelation. But Paul said, you're not very mature as a church. It's not the size, it's not the gifts, it's not the power. Um, Jesus says you'll be known by your love and Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says if you've got all those gifts and knowledge and anointing and you don't have love, it doesn't really matter and love just down to how you treat people. And so, you know, Ephesus is another great church that uh, had great anointing and revival and in the end they had a lot of programs, a lot of ministries, but Jesus says you've you've lost your first love. And so when it comes down to it, as we're building our churches, I think what matters to Jesus is the, the, the love that's there people for each other, the kind of family we're building, and the love we have for our city and for those beyond. And there's a lot of good reasons to be a pastor, to lead. We all want to contribute, we want to be significant, we all want to uh, encourage people, but I think ultimately our, our motivating force needs to be to love God and to love people. Amen? Uh, my dad is now 90, and um, just this year he's uh, become, over the last few years, a bit more frail, and uh, we had to um, help move him to an aged care home a few months ago, which was very hard for him. Um, so, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was sitting with my dad in the aged care home, he's 90 now. He's pastored a church, he ran a Bible college, he's traveled the world. Um, he's written 66 books. I, I jokingly say my dad, I, my dad and I, not the Bible, no. Um, I jokingly say my dad and I have written 70 books between us. Uh, my dad's written 66 and I've written four. You know, so, uh, you know, he, he's, he's done a lot. And as, as I just sat there and spent some time with him, um, he's present but doesn't speak too, too readily now. And um, I do a bit of amateur poetry, and so that night I, I wrote this in my journal about my dad. Nearing the end, nothing to do, just waiting in a chair. Can't read. Can hardly speak, only stare, just be there. Wanting to stay, better to go. It can be confusing near the end. No more achievements, no more hills to climb, no more crowds now, only family and friends. Out of the limelight, into the shadows, an unknown face in an aged care home. Life almost over, what did it all mean? Did his best for God and church. Notes cast on the water spread far and wide. Bread for the hungry, seed for the wise. Followed the call, faithful to him. Stayed the course, finished the race. Love is all we have near the end. Love is all we need near the end. Let's pray. Lord, today... As we shared a variety of random reflections, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to highlight just what we need to hear today. Maybe there's just a little shift in our perspective, a little adjustment in our emphasis so that we could build the kind of churches that would make you proud, that will see the Bev's and the Tonys in this city come to know you personally that would um, catch the wind of your spirit and see some amazing things happening in this city and beyond. And so, bless every pastor here today. And most of all, may they realize in the end, love is what really matters. Loving you, loving people, and ultimately hearing you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I pray a blessing on, on every church of all different types here today. And that your presence would be something we become more aware of this year. Will we slow down enough to see those burning bushes and stop and hear you say, Moses, John, Mary. We would hear your word and when we get up to speak, we would speak from an overflow of what you poured into our hearts and lives. And so bless every church, every leader, some who may be feeling discouraged today. Um, Some who may feel like Moses, like they're in a desert, a dry place. God, in just a moment, you can turn a desert place into Bethel, the house of God. And so sometimes we don't need to move to a new place. We just need to see our current place with new eyes. And so encourage those that may be feeling down tonight, that uh, you love their church even more than they do. and. They will be faithful, and in being faithful, they will see great fruitfulness this year. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone say amen. 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 Bell, we'll go to slide two now. I didn't want to put this up because I know all of you read ahead. So they were the seven thoughts tonight, presence over program, relationships over tasks, being over doing, practices over beliefs, stories over numbers, exiles over kings, love over all, and so... I hope uh, the cheese platter was enjoyable, not too much blue cheese in there, I'm not a big blue cheese fan, but something there for all of you tonight, so that's up there. I'll just go into the next slide, and then um, uh, a couple of resources, uh, website up the top, I've written four books, not 66, um, I'll just give you a brief blurb on these, they're available at Word Bookstore, um, or on Amazon in e-book format, and so Prison Break um, Just an interesting story behind this book. We once did a survey in our church, and the survey was uh, open-ended. And one of the questions was, I wish someone would preach about, and we left it blank. And then we collected everything. Well, first of all, I had enough to preach on until Jesus comes back. But I was amazed what people wanted to hear sermons about. And there wasn't a direct match to what we were preaching about. Some of the things on the list were, I wish someone would preach about anger about worry, about depression, about addictions. It's a whole bunch of stuff. And I looked at that and thought, wow, we've been scratching where people aren't itching. You with me? And so we did a whole series called Prison Break from Luke 4. Remember Luke 4? Jesus gets up and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim freedom. It wasn't Braveheart, it was Jesus. Freedom to the captives. And so we did a whole series of messages. Freedom from worry. Freedom from fear, freedom from addiction, freedom from inferiority and rejection, freedom from... Oh, we did a whole series. It was, it was probably the most impacting series we've done because it's where people were living their daily lives. And so we ended up putting that into a book. Many churches have followed those and done the series. And so uh, that's available. It might be of help to you. Uh, funny story, someone got this book and sent it to a friend of theirs in an actual prison. And, and, it, and it got confiscated and sent back. I think they thought there were like underground tunnel plans or something like that. <laughs> so, look, that, that that's a book that maybe have helped to you. Number two is transforming your church. When I became the pastor, I turned aside and I felt God give me seven shifts that our church needed to make. Using the idea of a manual vehicle, how I many? If you're in second gear and you go to a certain speed, unless you change gears, you're gonna blow the thing up. But if you'll transition to a higher gear, you'll go faster on less energy. So uh, this is a great book for leaders, talks about outreach, all kinds of things. Thirdly, successful Christian ministry. A lot of stuff that I speak to staff, some of the principles we shared tonight. And then fourthly, pass the baton. I've, I've seen three transitions. I was there when it went from Richard to my dad, from my dad to me, actually three, and then from myself to Andrew. And so a lot of people say, um, how did that work? You know, when, when I took over, the founding pastor and my dad stayed in the church. That was fun. So we get a lot of questions about transition. And you need to think about transition. You know, um, every pastor is an interim pastor. Someday, someone will be doing what you're doing. The best time to prepare is now. There's a prophecy for some of you tonight. Maybe not the one you want to hear. Pass the baton. So that's available there. Um, on my website, there's a link to my blog. And I put a lot of stuff up on the blog. In fact, some of the guys this morning said, can I get the notes from the men's breakfast talk? That's on my blog. And so there's a lot of information there that hopefully will be helpful to you. So that's my little commercial, little ad before we finish up. So how are we going? It's quarter past we're, eight. We're going Hope fine. that's been helpful. Um, love you guys. Looking forward to hanging out tomorrow and tomorrow night. And so... Um, thanks for coming along tonight. Be encouraged. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Thank
0: yeah, day? yeah. I, I, only if, uh, y- y- you read it. I don't know. If, uh, Mark did mention something to me this morning about Q&A. And um, I don't know everyone here, but I know there's probably five senior pastors, so I think if I, if those Lee pastors have a question, yeah. because I have a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm. I'm also just wondering, Michael. Michael over here has just become, just taken over a church a few weeks ago. So maybe that prophecy about him looking the hand over <laughs> No, 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 no that's no, too, no, no, no. No, too Too quick. Too yeah. quick. Yeah. Um, but um, if, if there was one thing, being uh, that exile understanding or mm. being an apostolic people, you carry a culture, but you're in another, uh, in a foreign culture. What What is there one thing in the, that you think the Australian church, Australian Christians, need to know about the current Australian culture? that maybe because of our ease we miss, or maybe because of our sense of Christendom, mm-hmm. sense of Christian culture, that we really need to understand a bit this foreign culture that we're living in. Is there one or two things that you've learned? And knowing as well, you come from a big city, we come yeah. from a regional yeah. area, so your culture's kind of upstream a little bit. Um, so there's things that a big city sees before a regional city might. But yeah, is there something about yeah. the Australian culture you think, gee, if the church would really just understand this?
1: Look, I, I think there's a whole conversation around wh- what, is, what is the gospel? And we, we know its core is Jesus died, da 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 rose from the dead, etc. Um, what is good news for the average Australian? I think there's a conversation around that. Um, Tim Keller in his book Centre Church does some brilliant stuff around this. There. So there's only one gospel. But there's many ways to communicate the gospel. And he says something powerful. He says the gospel needs to be shaped in a way that meets the needs of individuals and confronts their unique idols or things they're looking for to meet their needs. So I'll give me give you an illustration. There's only one gospel, but w- what's the gospel in Matthew? Matthew's all about the king. Who's his audience? Good. Jewish people. He's saying, Jews, you're looking for the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. So he shapes the message to meet the needs and to show them that Jesus is the long awaited Messiah. You know, if you go to John, which is written to the broader world, what's the gospel in John? It's all about eternal life. Zoe, life. And it's not just life when you die, it's actually about a better quality of life now. It's all about eternal life. Um, if you look in the book of Romans, what's the gospel there? Well, it's. Um, it's actually forgiveness for sins. Jesus died. It's, sac- it's a sacrificial language because it was an empire with sacrifice, and you sacrifice to the gods. And so Paul's saying, Jesus actually is your sacrifice. So, so if you look at the New Testament, one gospel, but expressed in different language and shaped to meet the needs and confront the idols. So I, I mentioned all that to say is as you think about your neighbor, what, How is Jesus good news for them? And I think sometimes we've got a kind of cookie cutter. Well, Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. We're dealing with a generation that doesn't feel guilty. So how does forgiveness become good news when I don't feel guilty? Well, the old style is, well, we'll make you feel guilty. And then we'll let you know that now that you feel guilty, here's the good news. You know, the old turn or burn. And so forgiveness for sins is part of the gospel, but often people out there, they're not feeling guilty right now. But I tell you what, they're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for belonging. They're looking for a whole bunch of things. And so I think the gospel actually is much broader than the way we're presenting it. Uh, In fact, if you look at the... Most people coming to faith in our churches... Usually the two things right now that are are the catalysts are pain and transition. How many know people in pain kind of look up? Late in our church, husband's not a Christian, marriage on the rocks, comes to the counseling center, uh, end up fixing their marriage, he comes to church, becomes a follower of Christ. The pain was the catalyst to that transition. Um, Our church in Melbourne, 105 nationalities. And in the cities, and, and whether it's Hillsong, with Planet Shakers, you just go have a close look, the majority of people coming to faith are immigrants. See, when you're in Iran and you're a Muslim and you're in that culture, and then you move to Melbourne and you're away from your family and your culture, you are open. You're in a liminal space and you're open to change. And so right now, the most people coming to faith are because of pain or they're in transition and therefore they're open to new things. Uh, But the average Aussie male, average Aussie girl, if life's good, bless you guys what you do on the weekend, but I don't need God. And so, anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but I think there's a piece here that says somehow we have to rethink in our generation, um, even if life is good, life can be better with Jesus in your life. You know, you don't have to be in pain, you don't have to fall apart before Jesus can actually enhance your world and your life so and then the whole idol thing is where we're actually looking to whether it's sex power all these things that ultimately don't meet our needs so i I, am just on the beginning of this journey so i'm i'm exploring it but i think there's a there's a piece here that we as leaders need to think through and i think help our people